You're listening to audio from The Village Church. This teaching is designed to be listened to after having completed the lesson in the workbook. It is not intended to stand alone. You can download the workbook at tvcresources.net. All right, so here we go, part two. Um, Now, we started out last semester, for those of you who are new, with the shocking revelation that there is actually no such thing as the book of 1 Samuel. And uh, so here we are at the beginning of the semester on 2 Samuel, and it's time for us to remind ourselves once again that not only is there no such thing as the book of 1 Samuel, there's no such thing as... The book of 2 Samuel. So we are going to be taking a look at the second half of what is one story. It's one continuous story. And the reason that it's broken into two parts had to do with the scroll length on which it was recorded originally. And so we are now on to the second scroll of the book of Samuel. And last semester, we got to see sort of the beginning of the story. But before we get into our review and our overview of this semester, I do just want to take an opportunity to set up very quickly what our study method is. And our study method is one that is relying on three different mechanisms to help you learn the Bible. And the first is the individual work that you will do in the homework during the week. The second one is the group time that you will have with your small group. And then the third is the teaching time. And we've done those in that order for a particular reason. And it's because we are committed to placing you in dedicated, active learning environments. And by dedicated, what I mean is that this is a room where our highest stated purpose is going to be learning. So there are rooms that you will come into as part of your being in the church where the primary stated purpose would be community or where the primary stated purpose might be worship, like in the most traditional way that we would understand worship. But when you come into this room, we are saying we love community and we love worship and we love service. And there are going to be aspects of that to what we're doing here. But our primary goal for you is that you would be a learner. And one of the things that has been so cool for me is that my daughters are going through, my daughters are in college and they're going through 1 Samuel right now with a group of friends. And so they're all students right now at Texas A&M. And they were listening to the introductory material for 1 Samuel, which always makes me a little nervous. Like, I don't mind if you guys listen to me, but when my kids and their friends are listening, I'm like, how's that going? Is that going okay? And, uh, and my daughter was texting me and she was saying, dedicated active learning environments, yes! You know, she's like, places where we can think hard about the text. And I, I told her, I said, man, you know, um, working with adults, it's so obvious that we forget. We just forget what it means to be a student so often. It's been a while since we were in high school or since we were in college or junior college or whatever your educational experience was. And we forget the joy of learning. And we also often don't know how to connect that joy of learning that we might remember with the Bible. We think that the Bible is this mystical book that just sort of reveals truth to us if we sit down and open its pages and that we can sort of treat it however um, we feel like treating it, that we can just flip to whatever page and read a few verses and, and that they'll just tell us truth. And I'm not going to say that you can never just open the Bible and flip to a passage and have it yield up truth to you, but I am going to say that there are better ways to approach the Bible. There are ways to approach the Bible that would mean that if you were to flip to a passage and do that, it would yield up truth to you in a better way than it might otherwise, and that is by learning 
the Bible, the way that the Bible has been offered to us. And so that's why at the village and in these rooms, we are committed to studying entire books of the Bible from start to finish. Um, We are not going to break them down because we know that there are plenty of other places you can go if you want a snapshot of a piece of a book, but also because when I I stated earlier when I first stood up that, um, that the the question we need to ask when we're in a room like this is how are healthy disciples formed? And when I look at the church and I look for where I see health and unhealth, one of the places that I see a consistent pattern of unhealth is with people's understanding of their sacred text. We have in many cases only received it in devotional form or in topical form, but very rarely have we gained the foundational understanding of the text, just knowing what it says from start to finish in any given book, and then also just the big picture of what the Bible is saying from start to finish. The Bible is cohesive. It is saying one thing in 66 different books. And so when we gather to do this, we're asking in this particular book, how is the story of the Bible creation, fall, redemption, restoration, how are those narratives playing out within the individual narratives of this particular book? So we're doing things in a particular order. The homework is the way that it is for a particular reason. We've put a lot of thought into this. And honestly, we've done this for a while and we feel pretty convinced that what we are committed to is a system that works in terms of not just teaching you a book of the Bible, but giving you tools so that you are more comfortable opening the Bible on your own anytime you go to it. So in the course of this study, what the homework will do, hopefully, is it will handhold to help you begin to ask different and better questions of the text than you might have learned to do beforehand. I have an English degree. And that's going to be obvious to you if you're new to the study, because one of the big questions that I had coming out of college with an English degree was, why do I treat Shakespeare according to a set of rules? But when it comes to the Bible, I read it however I want. Why do I read a science text a particular way? But when it comes to the Bible, I read it however I want. Why do I read poetry according to a certain set of rules? But when it comes to the Bible, I read it however I want. The Lord could have given us the revelation of who he was using any medium. He could have done it through music. He could have done it simply through us looking out at nature. He could have done it through a movie. But what did he choose? He chose words. And he chose them in the form of a book. And like any other book that you have ever read, every book in here starts somewhere and ends somewhere. It builds, it has a story arc to it, depending on the genre, the book that we're in now certainly does. It's been put together in a particular order for a particular purpose by a human author who had an objective, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit to lay it out exactly the way that it was laid out. So one of the things that we're wanting to give you are tools to be able to ask questions of the text that the text is wanting to answer. So too often when we come to the Bible, we're asking the question we want answered from the text without any consideration for what the text was trying to speak to in the first place. So that means that you might find that things are done a little bit differently here if you've never done one of our studies before. 
So we're going to have three different kinds of questions that will be in the homework. And it, for the first week, you will have your homework to go through, but I always like to say if you're new to the class, please be sure to read through the introduction before you do your homework because it'll sort of take a little bit more time with what I'm about to tell you right now. But we have three kinds of questions, comprehension, interpretation, and application. So that's C-I-A. I do love a good acronym. Yes, I do. <laughs> So the comprehension questions are simply the questions that are getting you into the facts of what you're reading. You should be able to take a pop quiz over what you read if you have comprehended the passage. So for example, last semester we covered the story of David and Goliath. Ooh, let's see. Let's see if you comprehended. Uh, pop quiz right now. How many stones did David gather when he went to kill Goliath? That's so good. Okay, five. We're doing great. Whew, all right. It's a little nervous there. Uh, and so then interpretation is the second level of question that we would ask. And interpretation, if comprehension asks what does it says, interpretation asks what does it mean. So that means that we would take a look at the story of David and Goliath and we would begin to ask, well, what's the meaning of this story? Like what, if this story is not in the text, what what is missing from the whole story of the book of Samuel. And so I'm not going to tell you that right now. You can go back and listen to it if you forgot. But uh, interpretation would be what is the meaning of what is going on. And then lastly would be application. An application is going to ask, how should it change me? Like, what should I do with it? Probably, if you've spent much time in the church, most of the kinds of questions that you have encountered in a small group time are the application questions. In fact, I would say that in Christian subculture, we are obsessed with application. We want to pick up the Bible, we want to spend 10 minutes reading through it, and then we want to go, how should it change me? How should it change me? How should it change me? When we talk about how do we form healthy disciples, the piece of unhealth that I have seen consistently is that we overrate the application piece and we underrate the comprehension piece. Many of us have spent very little time just trying to get under our skin what the text says, which means that when we get to application, we're basing the application on what someone else said or on a very shallow understanding of the text ourselves. And if we want to make proper application of a text, then we have to spend more time on that first piece up front. Good application questions are always a product of a lot of work trying to understand what it says and what it means. So the homework is going to handhold with that a little bit. So you'll have those three kinds of questions. And then we always root our study in asking that foundational question, which Kelly talked about. And that is, what is the text telling me is true about God? Um, I've said this many times. Let me say it one more time for the benefit of this room. The Bible is a book about God, but we often read the Bible, even though we would all say that that is true, we would often go to the Bible and read it as though it was not a book about God primarily, but was actually a book about me, about ourselves. And so we have that impulse in us. And what we're going to do in this study is we're going to push back on that. We're going to try to get ourselves to get out of asking, who am I when we come to the text? And to first ask, who is God in these pages? Because the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self always go hand in hand. There is no true knowledge of self apart from the knowledge of God. We need God as our reference point. But I have found through years of doing this that many of us have an atrophied vocabulary when it comes to who God is. We know that he's gracious. We talk about that a ton. We know that he's merciful. 
We know that he's just, but we don't really, we're not really sure. We don't want to talk about that too much, or we, we, if it gets scary, we're going to move on to another attribute. Um, and so there are things that are true about God that often go sort of unexplored by us because, frankly, we're more interested in who we are than in who he is sometimes. But also, I think that it's just a void in what the church has done from a discipleship standpoint, the big C church. But we're going to, this is a church, the village is a place where we start teaching the attributes of God to your children in elementary school. Well, actually, I mean, even in preschool, they're getting it. And you know what is not going to be cool with me? If the third grader knows the attributes better than the mom. So I want this to be a room where we are spending time meditating on the excellencies of God. So if you look at the very back of your workbook on page 156, you'll see we have given you a list of the attributes of God, and you will need to use that each week. You don't have to use it, but it's a good way to start developing a vocabulary around what is true about God. These are some very basic definitions. So one of the things that it might be kind of fun to do as you're going through the semester, you might add your own thoughts. You might expand on these definitions. In fact, We've built these definitions off of the ones that the children are using in Kids Village. So you're a full-grown human. You feel free to expand your thinking along the definitions as you're seeing it emerge in the text. But at the end of each week of our study, you'll be asked, knowing that God is, and then you fill in what you've seen in the text. You can choose more than one. I mean, knock yourself out. If you saw 10 things, just keep doing homework. It's fine. Uh, or if you just saw one main thing, knowing that God is immutable, unchanging. See that in the text this week. Shows me that I am changeable. I'm always here and there. Or also, it might be that you look at it and say, and it's a good thing that I can change because it means that I can change from a sin pattern that I've been in for years to moving out of that sin pattern because God doesn't change and his promises don't change. And he's told me that he is willing that I would grow in righteousness. So we're going to have a focus on the attributes of God each week. And then also, where are you, little guy? Flip back one page to page 155. Oh, it's beautiful. It's so beautiful. It's a map, guys. I think you will be surprised how much your study of the text can be impacted by just simply perking up your ears when you hear a place, a place that's named in the text. Now, this map does not have every place that is mentioned in the text in the 24 chapters of 2 Samuel. And it may be that you might go online and look and see where that place was if you wanted to add it to your map or think it through. It is not always relevant when a place name is mentioned, but it can be. So, for example, we will see in um, the first couple chapters, David will go up to Hebron. Hebron is a significant place in the history of Israel. We'll talk about that in the teaching time. But it's mentioned because it's supposed to cue you to think of an earlier story. So if you will just pay attention to your map, I know you're like, ah, those are in my Bible. I don't really care about those. And I'm like, really? Because I hate your guts when you say that. <laughs> the, the maps are, um, particularly in the Old Testament, I mean that in the most loving way, too. <laughs> Particularly in an Old Testament study, when these were written, it was assumed that when you mentioned a a place name, there would be associations that you would have with that place. We're just not Jewish enough. Like we just don't know the landscape well enough. And I'm, I'm guilty of it too. And so one of the things that we'll be doing is helping you to place the story where it goes on the physical map. Uh, it, I mean, that whole region is not a very big place. And so if you start with learning sort of 
how things are laid out in the Old Testament. Then when you get to the New Testament and you start watching where Paul goes or watching where Jesus travels, it starts to make a lot more sense to you. So we'll be building our familiarity there. Kelly's gone through how a typical week of homework is structured, but it is highly formulaic. Uh, And you will notice that there is no commentary written into the study itself. So this is a really key thing that I want you to understand. So what you won't find is me telling a delightful story right in the middle of the homework questions or me um, giving you a a lengthy explanation of what the text meant in that particular space. And that is because of this principle we want you to follow of letting yourself sit in what you don't know. Who loves feeling dumb? None of us. Like nobody likes that and that's why we have Google. Because we can just look it up and we can remove that feeling of, oh, I don't know the answer to that. Sometimes it's just a curiosity, but other times it's like, I feel like I should know that by now and I still don't. And what we're looking to do in this room is not diminish that sense. We're looking to heighten it. Because if you want to be an active learner, you need to feel the extent of what you don't know in order to be properly motivated and ready to take in knowledge. So for example, you may not know a lot about tax codes, and you may be like, that's fine, I don't really need to know that stuff, until April 15th when you think, I don't really want to go to prison. And then you find ways to educate yourself about the tax codes. Why? Because that dissonance of, ooh, I don't know. And if I don't know, there might be real consequences associated with my ignorance motivates you to then learn what it is that you need to learn. Do you like how prison is my metaphor? That's really... (laughs) And if you don't learn the Bible, you will go to prison. No, but if we don't know the Bible, there are very real consequences in our everyday lives for how things will go. And so we want you to actually open yourself up to what you don't know. One of the things that is the most frustrating um, about church environments sometimes is that we all are pretending like we got this. And one of the things that we're going to do in this room is say, we don't got this. There's a lot that I still need to learn. There's a lot that I still need to learn. There's a lot that Elizabeth and Jenny still need to learn. And we're going to teach you as we are learning ourselves. You have permission to be a learner who is starting on a path. You don't have to show up knowing. In fact, when you hit those questions that say, what do you think? Guess what I actually want you to answer? What you think. Like, I don't want you to think, what does she want me to think? And I also don't want you to think, If I Googled this, I could come up with something to answer this question with. Or if I pulled out a commentary, or if I looked in the cheater notes of my study Bible, I could come up with a pretty good answer that was going to wow my small group. And if you do that, you will perpetuate this culture of, I got this. And what we want you to do is be honest about what you don't know and then allow learning to take place. But that means that I don't want you, this is the biggest rule I'm gonna throw out there, I don't want you to look at commentary until after you have done the three pieces of the study, which is personal study time, discussion time, and teaching time. Why? Because you will not be able to look at what someone said about the Bible or podcast what someone said about the Bible or read a blog post about what someone said about the Bible and listen to it with a critical ear until you have spent time in the text yourself. That comprehension piece that I said is so important is our first line of defense against false teaching because it guards against someone pulling something out of context 
or rushing past something that was actually way more important than they made it out to be. So when you sit in here on the teaching time, guess what the teaching time is? It's commentary. It's what someone said about the text. And I promise you, I have absolutely read commentaries before I stand up here to teach you. We read commentaries when we're putting together the homework. Commentaries are not the devil. Commentaries need to be used in their proper place. Otherwise, we will continue to have a secondhand knowledge of our text and take someone else's word for it. Now, the litmus test for you on how well you're doing with this is, do you ever disagree with what is being taught from up here? Now, like I said, don't feel like you have to yell out your disagreement in the middle of the teaching time. But do you ever go, I don't know. I don't know if that's where I would land on that. Because if you don't, it could be a sign that you've stopped being an active learner and you're a passive learner. You're just taking in whatever is coming from the platform. You may disagree and be wrong to disagree. You might later go back and go, oh, you know what? Actually, what he or she said was actually correct now that I've done a little bit of research on it. But if you constantly think that whatever you heard from up here was just the most wonderful thing you've ever heard, then probably it's time for you to start owning your sacred text personally so that you can form a better judgment. Because here's the deal. You aren't going to stand before God and give an account for how well Jen Wilkin loved God with her mind. You're going to stand before God and give an account for how well you loved God with your mind. And this is a room where we want to bring that piece of your spiritual life um, to life. We want you to have the life of the mind be a part of the life of faith. So the homework will be very formulaic because we're trying to teach you rhythms of asking good questions of the text. And once you have come to the teaching time, you feel free to go and find commentaries. But if you, if you want a good list of commentaries, we can help you with that because not all commentaries are created equal. Can I get a witness from anyone who spent time in commentaries? Um, if that, in fact, if you sit down with three different commentaries, you're going to find pretty quickly that they're not all saying the same thing. And that is what fuels my vision for ministry among women, because my experience growing up in a bunch of different denominations was that there was always someone up here preaching and saying really convincing things, and they weren't all saying the same thing. How am I supposed to know which one is teaching truth and which one is teaching error? We need firsthand knowledge of the text, so that is what we are doing here. All right, so you can turn to your intro sheet on page nine of your workbook. We're going to ask five basic questions that we ask every time we jump into a book of the Bible. But before we go through these five questions, let's just back up and make sure we're on the, page, the same page around a bigger question, and that is, why study the Old Testament? Why study the Old Testament? Honestly, second semester of an Old Testament study, I'm always like, gosh, I hope they come back. Because if you were going to say one testament is easier to study than the other, let's just do a little show of hands. How many people think that the New Testament is easier to study than the Old Testament? How many think that the Old Testament is easier to study than the New Testament? Okay, yeah, like four of you maniacs out there, right? Why The Old Testament is it's just hard. A lot of times we're further removed from it in terms, just in terms of just the space of time that's passed since it was written. Culturally, we can be so far removed from it. But the Old Testament is something where if we will come at it and say, how can I get in the skin of, my, of the original audience? How can I try to sit in the seat that they would have sat in and ask the same fundamental questions that they would have been asking? Then these texts are going to start to open up to us 
us in a way that they otherwise might not. If we come and sit in the Old Testament as a modern listener only, we will have a very hard time understanding what proper application we can draw from the Old Testament. But if we come and ask, well now, what were some, just put me in the world of this place first, then we're going to get a better yield out of our time. And so that's what these five questions are going to help us do. But why should we study the Old Testament? Well, some of you, how many of you did, you know, we're doing a lot of showing hands this time because uh, you're into that, right? I, should I make you stand up and sit? No, we'll just do hands. Um, how many of you did the Matthew study last year? And what did we constantly see Matthew doing? He's pointing to the Old Testament. Why? Because the assumption of the New Testament writers is that you know it. The assumption of the New Testament writers is not just that you know it, but that you know it well enough to where if they just drop in a phrase or a word or a portion of a verse, you know how like Matthew would just drop in one or two verses and he'd be like, this is to fulfill what had been said. And he'd say two verses and you're like, okay, I'm going to need just a minute to go find where that came from, right? But the original audience wouldn't have felt that way. Not only would they have known where he was quoting from, but they would have known everything around what he quoted. So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to build a comprehensive view of the message of the Old Testament, just of the stories of the Old Testament, of the purpose of the books that are back there, so that when we come to the New Testament, the New Testament does for us what it would have done for its original audience, pulls the whole thing together. Pulls the whole thing together. We should study the Old Testament because Jesus says that Moses spoke of him. Jesus said that. So if you want to know who Jesus is, if you want to understand who God is from Genesis to Revelation, you're going to need the Old Testament. You may think that the New Testament is easier than the Old Testament because you don't know the Old Testament. Because the more that I learn the Old Testament, the more I realize that I had a very simplistic understanding of what the New Testament authors were saying. And also, if, if you don't know the Old Testament, when you're in the New Testament and someone up here keeps saying, now in the Old Testament it says X, Y, and Z, again, you're taking someone's word for it. You're taking their application of what it said in the Old Testament to the New Testament text. So we're going to fight for that firsthand understanding. Why study the book of Samuel? And that's another question that we should start with. And we mentioned this at the beginning of last semester, that Samuel, when we view it as one continuous text, is made up of 55 chapters. Now, I have good news for you. We're already through 31 of them, which means you only have 24 this time. And when you divide that out across the weeks of homework that we have, it means you'll have slightly shorter increments to go through each week. Yes. So uh, more time to just meditate on the attributes of God and, you know, memorize large portions of the text. Um, you'll have a, a little bit of a slower pace this semester than you did last semester. But I, I will say that as we get into the latter parts of the story in 2 Samuel, it gets crazy. So even though you have less to cover, it might take more work to figure out exactly what is going on. But it's 55 chapters long from start to finish, which makes it roughly the third longest book in the Old Testament. The third longest book. It's longer than Genesis, which is only 50 chapters. 
And yet it only covers about 110 years of history, of Israel's history, whereas Genesis covers a much longer period of time than that in Exodus and some of those other Old Testament books. Only 110 years of history, but they are critical years in the history of the nation of Israel. And one of the reasons that I wanted us to do this book in particular, because each year we bounce Old Testament, New Testament. When we looked back at the Old Testament, I wanted to do this book in particular because this is a section of Israel's history that I think we often don't understand. Or we only understand it in snapshots, we, the, the vacation Bible school reading of the text, so to speak. We've heard its, its main stories as morality tales, but we haven't seen them connected to one another, and we may not have seen how they were pointing toward their fulfillment in Christ. So that'll be a big thing that we will want to do this semester. So let's ask and answer our five questions about the book of Samuel. It's going to help us also understand why it's such a critical book for us to study with regard to understanding the Bible as a whole. So first, also I hope you can deal with ambiguity because we're about to hit it. Like when we're studying James and I go, who wrote the book of James? That's kind of a gimme. But when I say who wrote the book of Samuel, if you yell out Samuel, "Mm, this is your safe place still, but don't say that again. Who wrote the book of Samuel? We don't know. We don't know who wrote the book of Samuel. If you start digging into the commentaries, you'll see that there are a bunch of theories out there on who wrote it. Was it more than one author? I think we can certainly say that it was pulled from more than one source, but we don't know whether it was one single author or multiple authors. And listen, when you hear that, I know sometimes you can be like, wait a minute, does that mean that God didn't write Samuel? Well, of course the Lord did. The Lord is able to superintend the writing of his word, whether it's through one voice or through 15 voices, whether it's through sources from one period that have been combined with sources from another period. The Lord is able to put exactly what he wants in between the covers of the Bible. So we don't know who the author is for the book of Samuel. And now are you ready for question number two? When was it written? We don't know. We don't know, but we do have some textual clues that can help us narrow down the time period that it was written in. So when we get to the end of 2 Samuel, spoiler alert, we know that David dies around 971 BC, okay? And so we know that the book had to have been written after the death of David, Uh, But then we also know that that one of the ways that you can date when a book is written, one of the things that scholars use to kind of date when it was written is they ask, what does it talk about and what doesn't it talk about? And so there are these major points in Israel's history. So if you look at uh, maybe a more familiar period of time that you might know about in the New Testament, what's the significance of the date of 70 AD in the life of Israel? the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And so a lot of the dating that is done for New Testament books has to do with whether that pivotal moment, whether that that 9-11 moment in their history shows up in the text, if there's any indication or awareness of it. So you can date a book to either before or after 70 AD based on that. And so in the Old Testament, one of those dates, one of those big, just traumatic moments in the history of the nation of Israel is 722 BC, which is when the Assyrians, uh, the Assyrian captivity begins and the northern kingdom is taken into captivity. So 722 BC, we do not uh, see any mention of this. And so we can assume that the book was written sometime between 971 and 722 BC. So it's pretty old. It's 
pretty old. It's written a long time ago. And to whom was it written? So you can see already if it's written that long ago in a culture that is far from where we live, we're going to have to do some good work around asking the right set of questions of the text. To whom was the book written? The book is written to the nation of Israel. Basically, from the time of its writing forward, it would be relevant to them. Why? I mean, why would it be written to that particular audience? It's written to remind them where they came from. As the, uh, all of the Old Testament books are doing, it is rooting them in this is who you are. Why? Because they're dwelling among all of these people who are idol worshipers and pagans, people who are following their own law. And so what the Old Testament books are often doing is saying, hey, this is your identity as a people. This is what sets you apart from the people who surround you. But it's doing a particular thing with regard to the history of Israel. It is setting up the kingship narrative for them. Uh, And so if you think about what has come before this book, you have Genesis and Exodus, which gave um, a history to Israel of, hey, these are the origins of the world. These are the origins of the people of God. This is how you ended up in captivity in Egypt. And then they come out of captivity and they go into the wilderness. And there's those 40 years in the wilderness during which Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy come into play where the law is given and explained and enumerated. And why? is the law given to them because it's what distinguishes them from other nations, right? It shows them how to give true worship to God. Deuteronomy. And they come out of Deuteronomy into the book of Joshua. And Joshua is the taking of the land of Canaan. So at long last, it's time to cross the Jordan and conquer the land that the Lord has given them and inhabit it and to rule and subdue its inhabitants. So Joshua takes us through, uh, and it's a, uh, you could say that Joshua is a creation narrative. So you have this repetition of creation narratives in the text. Joshua is a creation narrative in the sense that we see Joshua and the people of Israel bringing order order out of chaos in the promised land. And so they settle in the promised land. And then what's the book that comes after Joshua? Judges. Train wreck. (laughs) Judges. I have, there is no other book in the Bible, in my opinion, rivals Judges on the crazy scale. Um, In the book of Judges, we see what rule without a king looks like very clearly. Each tribe is ruled by a judge, but there is no central ruler. And so the book of Judges starts, anybody know how many judges are in the book of Judges? How many apostles? How many tribes? How many judges do you think there are in the book of Judges? See, this isn't so hard, is it? Twelve judges. Twelve judges. Thirteen. Just kidding. Okay, so um, at the beginning of the book, you see these judges who rule with some measure of success. They defeat their enemies. They establish order. But as the book goes on, it just spirals out of control, out of control, out of control, until at the end of the book, not only are they not defeating their enemies, but they are turning and devouring one another. And in the book of Judges, there's an important pattern set up that we're going to continue to trace through the book of Samuel. And we've already started doing so last semester. We'll build on it. And that is the idea that the measure of a civilization is how it treats the vulnerable in its midst. So if you want to know how civilized someone is or a culture is, you look to the last and the least and say, how are they being treated? Because the more civilized you are, the better the treatment will be that they receive. And in the book of Judges, we consistently see the vulnerable at risk 
abused, abandoned, mistreated. Specifically, women are presented to us in the narrative throughout the book of Judges, and the, the further in you get, the worse it gets in terms of the treatment of the women. And we're going to, this semester, as we've done last semester, we're going to keep our eye on the women of the book of Samuel as sort of the canary in the coal mine for how things are going with the rule of David. But we get to the end of the book of Judges, and one of the things that is repeated over and over again in that book, Judges 17.6, Judges 21.25 says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So the book of Judges is setting up for us this tension of, oh, this is not working. This is not working. This is not good. And then you have the book of Ruth dropped in there, sort of a bright spot in, in the time of the judges, sort of a story of hope, a story of redemption, in which Ruth is presented to us as a Christ figure. She's someone who is a strong deliverer for Naomi. She intercedes. Uh, and then we move immediately into the story of Samuel, who is chosen by God as the last judge. And then he is the one who is going to establish the kingship. And last semester we saw that there was the king that the people chose, and then there was the king of God's choosing. We talked about that familiar phrase you've often heard about David, that David was a man after God's own heart. And we're like, oh, it's adorable. David, gung, 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 gung. And all of the little stories about David and the women, it's like, I'm like, how many romance stories can we build around David and uh, the Abigail and Michael and Bathsheba? And it's going to be an interesting semester, I promise you that. Um, and that the contrast that's being set up for us is between the man that the people choose and the man that God chooses. And so what you need to understand is man after God's own heart doesn't mean the man that God, he, would just, he just was after the heart, God loved him so much. Now, did God love David? Absolutely he did. But the point of that phrase, heart, the heart was the seat of the will in the, in the ancient mind's understanding. So the will is where we choose. So he's the man of God's choosing. And so it's a comparison between what we choose left to our own devices and what God chooses for us. And if you think about that, think about how neatly that fits with the rest of the story that we see in the Bible. What did you have? You had Ishmael laid up against um, Isaac. Sorry, blanked out there for a second. You had um, Esau laid up against Jacob. Even before that, you had Cain and Abel, and then Seth, who ends up being in the righteous line. So these comparisons between, yeah, this is the one that God chooses. And notice how things go for the one that God chooses versus the one that you guys thought was the one that you wanted for yourselves. And that God's sovereign choosing, as we'll see clearly this semester, does not mean that everything's going to be smooth sailing because the right person is in place. But what we will see is the difference between the person that we choose and the person that God chooses is that this person repents. This person returns again to the Lord. Okay, I'm ahead of myself a little bit. So it's written to the nation of Israel, and it is history 101 for an Israelite. It answers the question, how did we get the kingship? Because what's the point of the kingship? Why is it so important that we understand? And we're going to see the Davidic covenant this semester too. Why are these such critical passages for us to understand? Because the kingship will ultimately be fulfilled in who? Christ. He is the king who will sit and rule on David's throne forever. 
If you pay attention to how many times David is mentioned in the New Testament in reference to Christ, it begins to pull together for you why it's so important for us to understand what's going on here. It's History 101. I said last semester that this is like the Texas history classes that all Texas children take, and then I couldn't remember my Texas history as I stood in front of you. That was a great moment for me, and I had it replayed for me by my daughters last night. Texas history, like we're over the top on it, right? Like we study Texas history more than people from New Jersey study New Jersey history. Because we're a nation, man. Like if we need to be, we can pull that card again. (laughs) Texans love Texas history. You talk to anyone who's gone through the public school system in any other state and they'll be like, you learned how much? What? You had an elementary, middle school and high school. And sometimes in college too. You love your Texas history. Why do we love it so much? It's part of our identity. It's, who, it's how we see ourselves. Like People also in other states, they don't decorate their homes with the state flag. <laughs> That's a thing only we do. <coughs> with stars or with, you know, you know what I'm talking about. So um, I, I came across something that was kind of funny. It's a sign that was placed on a little league field in Texas that I thought made my point pretty well. Do you have that slide for me? Hang on, we'll give John a second to get over there. So take a look at this. This is on the Little League field. Please remember, these are kids. This is a game. The coaches volunteer. The umpires are human. The Alamo. We want you to remember. Samuel wants you to remember wants you to remember the importance of the kingship to Israel so that when we move forward into the New Testament, we can understand the significance of the kingship of Christ. So it's written to that group of Israelites from the time of its writing forward, but it's also written to you and to me. And one of our tasks will be to make sure that when we start asking the question, okay, this is what it meant to them then, that we do a good job of them saying, so this is what it should mean to us now, because those two things are always connected. Okay, in what style is the book written? It's written as historical narrative, historical narrative. So the characters are historic people. They are real people. David was real. Samuel was real. Uh, Saul was real. Goliath was real. They are telling us real stories. And the events that are described are meant to be taken as fact. And how do we know that? Because this is the way that Jesus and the New Testament authors will refer to the Old Testament historical books. But we need to keep in mind that this does not mean that the history we're receiving is an objective, facts-only retelling of the story. It's not necessarily an objective, facts-only retelling of the story. The stories are constructed in such a way that they are making a point. That can give some of us real heartburn because we're like, wait a minute, it's propaganda? Well, okay, exhale a little because it's propaganda that's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So it's the Lord wanting you to see a particular thing from the story. And also, every one of you is a propagandist in the standpoint that you... When you tell any story you've ever told, you are picking and choosing what parts you're going to tell and what parts you're not going to tell. Uh, Dr. Jonathan Pennington was with the training program students this weekend. He did a great job of talking about this. He does a better job than I do. I'll give you the high points. If I asked um, Jenny, hey, what did you do this morning? And Jenny said, well, first I heard my alarm go off 
and then I hit the snooze button, and then I slept for another 10 minutes, and then it went off again, and I, you know, and then I brushed my teeth, and I would be like, okay, that's actually not what I meant. <laughs> and if she said, oh, you know, I got dressed, I was so pumped to come to Bible study, I got together my stuff, and I headed here, and I got here on time. What has she done? She has told me the parts of the story that she knows are relevant to the question that I asked. And so when we look at these historical narratives, we need to ask, what is the question that is being asked and answered? And how has this story been crafted so that it is answering that particular question? So these are histories, but they're histories with an agenda, much like Texas history is as well. You have never read a purely objective retelling of a historical account. So this is no different than that, except that in the ancient Near East, nobody was trying to convince you that you were reading an objective historical account. They were like, yeah, yeah I'm going to tell you what happened, and I'm going to tell it in such a way that you understand that there is one God. Okay. Um, so it's not an objective facts-only retelling of history. It's written with an agenda, an agenda and it has an intended point. Now, one of the things that is an impulse for us is that we would try to look for a moral in every portion of the text. Uh, we're just kind of conditioned that way because of uh, vacation Bible school and Sunday school settings where we're like, oh, but you know, what's the moral that I take away? So I want to both encourage you and caution you on that. There are times when something is given to us and there is no moral. It's just moving the story along. And there are times where a moral is given to us, but it might not be the moral that we were expecting, or it might not be the primary application. So if you, for an example of this would be, if you've ever heard the David and Goliath story as, you need to be more like David, right? And you're like, okay, I'm going to be brave, and I'm going to uh, go out there and whatever the giants are in my life, and blah, blah, blah. And that's actually been something that a lot of people have taken shots at over the years, um, because in the one sense, well, the story like Nancy Guthrie came and did a training for us and she said, anytime you're looking at a story like that, you should start by looking at what the average people are doing in the story because that's probably who you are. <laughs> so like, what's Israel doing in the story of David and Goliath? Acting like idiots, right? They're quaking in their boots. They are not believing that the Lord is capable of delivering them. Who believes that the Lord can deliver them? David does. So sure, be like David, but also recognize that you're actually like Israel. And so the reason that we want to be like David is because who is David a type of? Christ. David is pointing us toward Christ. So we should ask, how is David behaving like Christ? How is he pointing us toward the work that Christ will do? And then we should say, because we are supposed to be like Christ, how can I emulate what is going on in this story in the way that David behaves? So um, we need to be sure that as we look for a moral of the story, we don't default to some earlier setting in our heads about how to turn these into nothing more than a morality tale, but they are often morality tales. So we'll be digging through all of that. What are the major themes of the book? The book is a study in contrasts. It compares for us the strong and the weak. It compares for us the proud and the humble. Uh, it compares for us the tension between depending on external appearance versus internal character. It will compare the righteous to the unrighteous. It will give us the tension between God's sovereignty and human agendas and timelines. And it will allow us to experience the tension between order and chaos in the kingdom as things move forward. Can a king bring order to the nation of Israel be, will be one of the big questions that it will set up for us. 
Because that's the question that you would be asking if you had just read Judges before you read the book of Samuel. So it'll be this whole upside-down thing that we see carried into the New Testament writings as well. And if you're ever wondering, now wait, have I lost track of the themes of the book? We actually have a snapshot of what the themes of the book are for us all the way back at the beginning of the book of Samuel in chapter 2 in the prayer of Hannah. We spent some time on it last time, but if you're ever kind of losing your bearings, go back and look at Hannah's prayer and ask, how is Hannah's prayer coming to pass in the passage that we are looking at this week? And it can bring you back around to the focus of the book. So in 1 Samuel, we saw the birth of Samuel. Then we saw the Philistines capturing the ark. There was that sort of hilarious story. It was hilarious and sad story of where everybody was using the ark as a lucky rabbit's foot. And that didn't go well. Um, We saw Saul become the king. We saw his disobedience, his loss of the kingdom. But he doesn't lose the kingdom immediately, right? Like Samuel says, you're not going to have the kingdom any longer. And so we still see his story ascend for a while. But then we begin to see it do this. And we know that David has already been chosen to be the king, but we're living in the already not yet, where he's the anointed king, but he is not the seated king. And David consistently refuses to harm Saul because he will not touch the Lord's anointed. And so Saul continues to wreak chaos. He is the man of the people's choosing, and he wreaks chaos. And David spares his life. And at the end of the book, when we sent you home and said, Merry Christmas, Saul had just fallen on his own sword, and the men of Jabesh-Gilead had gone and taken his body and given it a decent burial. They had protected him from the scorn that would have been heaped on his physical remains by their enemies. And that's where we sent you home. That's where we sent you home. So we've seen Saul's story do this. And we've seen David's story do this. And so this semester we get to get the rest of the story. And we're going to see David do this. And then we're going to see him do this. And one of the big questions that we'll have to ask is how do we reconcile the idea that the man of God's choosing is such a conflicted character for us? What's the message that we take from that? What's the warning? What's the assurance? What's the hope when there are some pretty hopeless scenes that we are going to encounter? And ultimately, the big question that we will want to answer is where do we see Christ in these pages? I can't wait. Let me pray for us, and you will be dismissed to your small group time. Heavenly Father, thank you for the stories of Saul and David that are preserved for us. Lord, as your chosen people, as the people of your choosing, we ask that you would give us teachable hearts this semester, that you would help us to comfort in the fact that you have set your love on us according to no merit of our own, but also that we would be properly exhorted to live lives of obedience that bring glory to you, knowing that you have chosen us for your own. We ask all these things in the name of your Son, the King who is seated and ruling on the throne of David. Amen.